The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. I know why the caged bird sings. The first of seven autobiographical works by legendary writer and activist Maya Angelou was first published in 1969. The book chronicles her life from age 3 through 16, recounting a turbulent and at times traumatic childhood that would include rape and racism. Caged Bird would go on to become one of the most widely read and taught books written by an African-American woman. Over more than five decades, the protagonist of the book, Marguerite Johnson, has come alive in our imagination, living in the land of literature where you can imagine her jumping rope with Meg Murray from A Wrinkle in Time and Scout Fitch from To Kill a Mockingbird. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, legends, and freedom. I'm your host, Jason Nemour Hardin. And on this episode, we explore the life of Maya Angelou and her debut autobiographical novel, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Quote, I have great respect for the past. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. I have respect for the past, but I'm a person of the moment. I'm here, and I do my best to be completely centered at the place I'm at. Then I go forward to the next place. End quote. Being an autobiography written in the style of a novel, much of what is told in the book are elements we are going to revisit in this section. Nevertheless, it is what shaped Angelou both as a person and as a writer, and therefore holds great weight. She was born Marguerite Annie Johnson on April 4, 1928 in St. Louis, Missouri. One of the first memories Marguerite remembers is being three years old. Her brother Bailey, who would be responsible for the nickname Maya, was five. Her parents had agreed to separate, but neither of them wanted the hassle of having to deal with small children, so Maya and Bailey were put on a train to Arkansas with tags on their arms, headed for Stamps, a little village in Arkansas where they would live with their grandmother. Being cast off by their parents was a terrible rejection, one that Bailey never managed to get over. Maya, however, did manage to get over it, but only by declaring her mother dead in her mind. The pain and longing of having a mother somewhere out there in the world was too much to bear. It was easier to pretend that she was dead and leave it at that. And as if it wasn't enough to be the offspring of a shattered marriage, Maya and her brother had to live through their early formative years surrounded by harsh racism. Her grandmother, who was the child of a former slave, owned the only black-owned store in the small village. Despite being respected in the neighborhood, the racism was abundant and never hidden. In one instance, Maya's grandmother became outraged when a dentist, to whom she had lent money to when he was in danger of losing his practice, refused to examine her granddaughter, saying, I'd rather stick my hand in a dog's mouth than a nigger's. Sometimes, the Ku Klux Klan would ride into town, up to Maya's grandmother's store, 
looking for excuses to be violent. On horses, bearing large guns and covered in robes, little Maya, looking at them through the cracks of the walls of the store, saw them as non-human creatures, little less than demons, and she wasn't wrong. Now, knowing that Maya would have to venture out into the world if she wanted to make anything of herself, her grandmother began teaching her how to read from the day of her arrival in Stamps. Between three to four years later, their father returned. Maya and Bailey were excited. It appeared to them that he was taking them back to California, where he resided. Unfortunately, their California dreams were short-lived when it came to light that their father was only there to pick them up in order to deliver them to their mother in St. Louis. Again, they were deceived. Adding to the misfortune, when they arrived in St. Louis, they met their mother's boyfriend, a man filled with rage and downright ugliness. This is the man who, when he couldn't have his way with her mother, would rape seven-year-old Maya. The boyfriend threatened her that if she screamed, he would kill her, and if she told anyone, he would kill her brother. She dared not tell her nine-year-old brother the name of her assailant for fear that something horrible would happen to him for a long while. She eventually revealed the name of the perpetrator. He was arrested, but only for a day and a night before being released. Shortly thereafter, he was found beaten to death. In young Maya's mind, she convinced herself that her words killed the man. She was so terrified, she stopped speaking for five years on account of thinking that the sound of her voice would lead to the death of someone else. Unable to figure out what to do with her silent daughter, Maya's mother put her children back on the train to Stamps. In Grandma's care, she treated Maya's silence with understanding and compassion. She would tell Maya that she was sure that she would speak when she was good and ready. Grandma never pushed her. A lady in town, Mrs. Flowers, would take Maya to her house for lemonade and cookies. She would read poems for Maya, not expecting the child to speak, simply enjoying her company. After years of this, one day Mrs. Flowers said to her, You don't like poetry. You'll never like it until you speak it, until you feel it come across your tongue, over your teeth, through your lips. You will never like it. Then finally, after five years of silence, hidden away and alone, she read a poem out loud to herself. Those five years of silence had been far from a waste of time. Maya had read every single book in the black school library. She then read all the books she was able to from the white library as well. She memorized full Shakespeare plays, whole novels, Edgar Allan Poe poems, and much more. Her inner storyteller was forming and becoming more adept by each sentence that reverberated in her head. Quote, I stopped speaking for five years. In those five years, I read every book in the black school library. When I decided to speak, I had a lot to say. End quote. Maya grew tall at age 16, six foot tall, living in San Francisco. 
A young man whom had repeatedly shown interest in her became her first sexual encounter, and a month later, she found out she was pregnant. Now, her mother, much to her credit, did not make Maya feel guilty. She simply asked her if she loved the boy who was the father of the child-to-be. Maya replied, no. Her mother then asked, does the boy love you? Again, she replied, no. Which led her mother to then say, we're not about to ruin three lives and told her that she was going to have a beautiful baby, implying that they would raise it together. Amaya followed numerous jobs in her son's developing years, and because of this, they moved frequently. So much so that during the first nine years of school, they had lived in five areas of San Francisco, three townships in Los Angeles, New York City, Hawaii, and Cleveland, Ohio. To make ends meet, Maya started out as a dancer at strip clubs. She didn't strip, but the skimpy outfits she was told to wear left little to the imagination. Her stint at the strip clubs wouldn't last long, however, when she finally came to the realization that she could make three times the money by singing at clubs. And just like that, she became a singer. The trend in music at the time was Afro-Caribbean and Calypso music, making her known as Miss Calypso. It wasn't that she had a great voice, rather it was that she knew how to use it. Eventually, her voice landed her a gig in Las Vegas, which seemed like a dream come true. Unfortunately, she was met with the fact that though white audiences liked her performance, she was not allowed to mingle with them afterwards. Black performers at the time, in the mid-1950s, were expected to put on a show and then go back to their rooms. She didn't protest or make a scene, but it made an obvious impact on her. It was during these performing years, years that were mostly spent away from her son, which caused a great deal of pain, pain which she began to write about. At first, she limited herself to short sketches, then to song lyrics, and then short stories and plays. In her travels, she met the likes of John Killens and Langston Hughes. Now, as a side note, for those of you who have only recently joined us at House of Words, Episode 16 is about Langston Hughes. That's if you're interested to learn about yet another legend. Now, both Killens and Hughes encouraged her to come to New York and join the Harlem Writers Guild. And for the record, it didn't take too much encouragement. Speaking of legends, she first met writer and poet James Baldwin during the 1950s in France. They immediately connected and soon became very good friends. As the 1960s kicked into gear, inspired and moved by both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, she took a deep dive into activism, which led to demonstrations, often bringing her son along with her. Opportunities arose, and one such opportunity would lead her to work in Ghana, West Africa as a journalist, actress, and educator for several years. She would then be invited back to the U.S. by none other than Malcolm X to work with him shortly before his assassination in 1965. Then, in 1968, Martin Luther King asked her to organize a march. Both Malcolm X and Dr. King considered her a wise and trustworthy confidant. It broke her heart when Malcolm X was assassinated. But with King's assassination, which happened on her birthday in 1968, she fell into a deep depression and became temporarily mute. 
once again. For many years following this, she responded to King's murder by not celebrating her birthday, instead choosing to meet with, call, or send flowers to his widow, Coretta Scott King. Seeing that she was deeply depressed by the death of her friends, to help lift her spirits, James Baldwin brought her to a dinner party at the home of cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer and his wife Judy in late 1968. The two guests began telling stories of their childhoods, and the stories Maya told impressed Judy Pfeiffer. We enjoyed each other immensely and sat up until three or four in the morning, drinking scotch and telling tales, Maya would later say. And Pfeiffer had liked her stories so much that the next day a phone call was made to Robert Loomis at Random House. You know the poet Maya Angelou? If you could get her to write a book. Maya Angelou's career as a writer was on the way, though at that point, she had no idea. At first, she refused to write the novel. She thought of herself as a poet and playwright, not a novelist. According to her, close friend James Baldwin had a covert hand in getting her to write the book and advised Random House's Robert Loomis to use a little reverse psychology on Maya. She would later report that Loomis tricked her into writing the novel by daring her. It's just as well, he said, because to write an autobiography as literature is just about impossible. Well, Maya, 40 years old at the time, was unable to resist a challenge and began writing I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Now, beginning with the writing of this novel, she would use the same writing ritual for many years to come. She would get up at five in the morning and check into a hotel room where the staff was instructed to remove any pictures from the walls. In the room, she would write on yellow legal pads while lying on the bed. Scattered around the room would be a bottle of sherry, a deck of cards to play solitaire, Roji's thesaurus, and the Bible. She averaged 10 to 12 pages of material each day and would leave the room by early afternoon. In the evening, she would edit these pages down to three or four more structured and polished pages. It's been written that she went through this process to give herself time to turn the events of her life into art and to enchant herself, as she said in a 1989 interview with the BBC, to relive the agony, the anguish, the Sturm und Drang. She placed herself back in the time period she wrote about, even during traumatic experiences like her rape, which was exemplified in The Caged Bird, to tell the human truth about her life. She stated that she played cards to reach that place of enchantment, to access her memories more effectively. It may take an hour to get into it, she would say, but once I'm in it, ha! It's so delicious. She did not find the process cathartic. Rather, she found relief in telling the truth. After closeting herself for two years, she managed to finish the piece. When selecting a title, she turned to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, an African-American poet whose works she had admired for years. The third stanza of Dunbar's poem, Sympathy, goes like this. I know why the caged bird sings. Ah, me. When his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I 
know why the caged bird sings. Ahead of its publication, James Baldwin was quoted as saying, Caged Bird liberates the reader into life simply because Maya Angelou confronts her own life with such a moving wonder, such a luminous dignity. I have no words for this achievement, but I know that not since the days of my childhood, when the people in the books were more real than the people one saw every day, have I found myself so moved. Her portrait is a biblical study in life in the midst of death. Quote, you are the sum total of everything you've ever seen, heard, eaten, smelled, been told, forgot. It's all there. Everything influences each of us, and because of that, I try to make sure that my experiences are positive. End quote. Maya again shared details about her writing day with Paris Review in 1990. I write in the morning and then go home about midday and take a shower, because writing, as you know, is very hard work so you have to do a double ablution. Then I go out and shop. I'm a serious cook and pretend to be normal. I play sane. Good morning. Fine, thank you. And you? And I go home. I prepare dinner for myself, and if I have house guests, I do the candles and the pretty music and all that. Then after all the dishes are moved away, I read what I wrote that morning. And more often than not, if I've done nine pages, I may be able to save two and a half or three. That's the cruelest time, you know, to really admit that it doesn't work. And to blue pencil it, when I finish maybe 50 pages and read them, 50 acceptable pages, it's not too bad. I've had the same editor since 1967. Many times he has said to me over the years or asked me, why would you use a semicolon instead of a colon? And many times over the years I have said to him things like, I will never speak to you again, forever, goodbye, that is it, thank you very much and I leave. Then I read the piece and I think of his suggestions. I send him a telegram that says, okay, so you're right. So what? Don't ever mention this to me again. If you do, I will never speak to you again. About two years ago, I was visiting him and his wife in the Hamptons. I was at the end of a dining room table with a sit-down dinner of about 14 people. Way at the end, I said to someone, I sent him telegrams over the years. From the other end of the table, he said, and I've kept every one, brute. But the editing, one's own editing, before the editor sees it, it's the most important. Upon publishing, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings was immediately popular and was nominated for a National Book Award in 1970. It also remained on the New York Times paperback bestseller list for two years. The book has been used in educational settings from high schools to universities, and the book has been celebrated for creating new literary avenues for the American memoir. It has sold millions of copies, has been translated into 17 languages, and has never been out of print. However, the book's graphic depiction of childhood rape, racism, and sexuality has caused it to be challenged or banned in some schools and libraries. She subsequently wrote six additional autobiographies covering a variety of her young adult experiences. They are distinct in style and narration, but unified in their themes and stretched from Arkansas to Africa and back to the U.S. from the beginnings of World War II to King's assassination. Like I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, the events in these books are episodic and crafted as a series of short stories, yet do not follow a strict chronology. 
She would then go on to write the screenplay along with Leonora Thuna for the 1979 television movie version of the story. It became a made-for-TV movie and was filmed in Mississippi and aired on April 28, 1979 on CBS. Two scenes in the movie differ from events described in the book, however. She added a scene between herself and Uncle Willie after the Joe Lewis fight. In this scene, he expresses his feelings of redemption and hope after Lewis defeats a white opponent. Furthermore, she presents her eighth-grade graduation differently in the film. In the book, Henry Reed delivers the valedictory speech and leads the black audience in the Negro National Anthem. In the movie, she conducts these activities herself. As usual, let's end this episode with another quote. This one from one of the bravest and most important writers to ever put her writing in print. My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive and to do so with some passion, some compassion, some humor, and some style." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemour Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. <laughs>